You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash filmschool. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In the new documentary, Kurt Cobain, About a Son, our guest today, A.J. Schnock, creates a meditation on the late musician, an artist based on more than 25 hours of previously unheard audio-taped interviews conducted with Cobain by noted music journalist Michael Azarad for his book, Come As You Are, The Story of Nirvana. In this extraordinary collage-like film, Cobain recounts his own life from childhood and adolescence to his days of musical discovery and his dealings with fame. Schnock was nominated for the Truer Than Fiction Award at the 2007 Independent Spirit Awards for his work on the film. A.J. Schnock, welcome to film school. Thanks so much for having me. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing real well. You're up in L.A. right now? Yes, I am. Well, very good. Now, I know you've heard this a million times, but give us a little background. How did you meet uh, Michael Azarad, and how did this come together? I did a film a few years ago called Gigantic. It was a documentary about They Might Be Giants. When I was doing that, Michael was uh, writing a piece for The New Yorker about the band, and so it ended up that I interviewed Michael for my film. You know, he and I sort of became friends, and uh, sometime after that, we were at a dinner together, and I was asking him about his time with Kurt and his time with uh, Nirvana, and he revealed that he had these audio tapes, approximately 25 hours of, of audio interviews with Kurt that no one had ever heard before and that Michael himself hadn't listened to since Kurt's death. People had asked him to use them for various projects, and he had always said no, but thought that at some point maybe he would want to do something with them. And so about a year later, after I had been thinking about the idea of these tapes for a little bit, I, I went to Michael after I knew he had seen Gigantic and uh-huh. proposed uh, the film. All right. So he handed over the tapes to you, or made copies of them, handed over the tapes. You had 25 hours. How did that process go with the editing? Uh, it, was, uh, it was remarkably more smooth than I anticipated it would be, in part because we had the idea of what the film was going to be was so specific. It wasn't going to be a, a Nirvana documentary uh, and wasn't going to be about the sort of the process of writing these songs or making these albums. And if you've read Come As You Are, which is the book that mm-hmm. Michael did the interviews for, a lot of it is very specific about how the albums were recorded or how specific songs were written or, or what the, the musical inspiration behind them was. So a lot of it of the 25 hours we knew was stuff we weren't going to use. We were really diving into the idea of Kurt telling the story of his life, which in in my idea is a a somewhat, uh, although it's certainly unique to him, there's a universality to his story also, someone of a specific age and certainly from that part of the country. So once we started pulling pieces, Michael and I were actually completely on the same page about what things from the interviews should be in the film. Not to get too precise about it, but about what percentage was stuff that you'd want to use compared to just the stuff about the albums and the uh, studio time? I think once we pulled everything uh, out, uh, we probably had about three hours of Uh stuff that was really specific to our project. I mean, there's, there's certainly other things in there that we could have used, but I think that it also became kind of clear the stuff that Kurt was sort of wanting people to know. And part of the reason Michael did the interviews for this book um, was that Kurt and, and Courtney were trying to uh, help settle the air in, in a way or, or 
get back some level of being able to speak for themselves after it seemed that tabloids and a few other Fair. books were starting to be written. Yeah, so, the Vanity Fair article, I'm sure. Yes, exactly. So there was definitely a sense that, that that Kurt wanted certain things to be known, and that really came across in in the interviews. Was there anything that you regret not leaving in? <laughs> No, actually, no. I mean, it seemed pretty, pretty obvious this stuff, and and you know, we just wanted to make sure it was a well-rounded. Well, I haven't had my yeah. coffee this morning. <laughs> sorry. Uh, well-rounded uh, conversation, and uh, and that you got a, a well-rounded picture of Kurt because I think in the interviews, the, he is funnier than you expect, and is perhaps um, also darker or a bit more delusional about his drug use, for example, mm-hmm. than than one might expect. I think that the, you, he certainly is is frank in a way that I don't think that we've ever heard him before. There's one section there, it almost sounds like an, a, a dare advertisement that's coming out of him. And, and yet, like you say, he's very frank in other sections, too. You start right off with the film with a quote where it's, he's almost threatening the audience or, or telling them they shouldn't care about what they're about to hear. Yeah, which, I think which, the, first, the first thing is that you know, yeah. he, he's not, he doesn't think he's anything special and doesn't yeah. deserve to have a book written about him. Uh, and then he goes on to say that people don't need to have the details of his life, and, yeah. but he'll do this one last interview, um, and after that he's not ever going to be this revealing again. And <laughs> In fact, I mean, on one level, that, that is a very Kurt-like threat that he was constantly playing in his dances with the media and, and the press, but in another sense it, it ended up being the truth because he never did another in-depth piece like yeah. this again and then, uh, before he died. A lot of what you heard from Kurt Cobain, it was a reaction to the, uh, to the stuff that was written about him. We're, the Vanity Fair article, Lynn Hirschfield's uh, article, in which there was a lot of, uh, apparently a lot of information in there that was turned out to not be correct at all, not be true. Well, there's at least the one thing uh, about the, the piece that bothers me the most and, and was certainly could have been checked um, there's a sort of a, a supposition made that Kurt had never really used drugs very much or at all uh, before he had met Courtney, that Courtney had sort of uh, introduced him to this life. And uh, unfortunately, I think, you know, no matter what you think of either Kurt or Courtney, um, we, we continue to live with this notion today that Kurt was some sort of uh, angelic figure and Courtney was this demon that came into his life and completely ruined it. And I think that the, the notion of the conspiracy theories around Kurt's death certainly are based in that pretense. Uh, and hopefully the film can go at least some ways to uh, diminishing those or demolishing those, those ideas, because I think the Kurt that you see in the film is, you know, while I, I find him to be uh, compelling and a very interesting and, and a you know, an important figure. I don't think that he, by any way, seems naive or angelic. I think, you know, you, he right. definitely has some some very rough edges going on. Oh, absolutely. And the reason I bring the Vanity Fair article specifically up is because it set in motion sort of a chain reaction in which uh, the uh, Los Angeles County Child Services, I believe, yeah. instituted, uh, began uh, proceedings uh, into whether or not they were... Uh, Courtney was a fit mother or they were fit parents. So it wasn't just a lot of scandal and gossip that was being purveyed in the, in the article, but in fact, it had a real impact on their lives. Yeah, I mean, and it was also, I mean, it was a very, I guess you could almost call it a, a very mean piece of journalism. It was definitely going after Courtney in a way and exposed both of them to a level of scorn that they had never really seen before. I mean, one of the things that I hope becomes apparent in the film is in you know in in the fall you know in September of 1991 
Kurt was living in this apartment in Olympia that you see in the film, a tiny apartment with yeah. Dave Grohl. Um, they were having to to sell and pawn equipment in order to go to the Safeway, which was down the street, and buy frozen foods. And less than a year later, this Vanity Fair article is out. So what we've seen is that not only, I mean, he's gone from only known within certain indie rock circles to the fact that his relationship is held up by a glossy, you know, lifestyle magazine. Right. Um, and, and that begins this whole tabloid assault. I think it was the Globe put a picture of a crack baby and said it was Francis. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, there were a bunch of things that started happening at, in, by 1992, in addition to the fact that he was suddenly the leader of this huge movement of music right. for the biggest rock star in the world. And all this occurs in a year's time. And that's, you know, I think that some people, they don't, because you know whether you live through it or not people don't get a sense of how drastic of change that was for Kurt I think yeah he certainly was wanting after the Vanity Fair article and after he knew that there were other people starting to write about his life I think that he felt you know he wanted to have some control and if anyone was going to tell the story he needed to tell it himself well even uh, even as you were pointing out they were uh, you know pawning equipment they were on tour and they were actually began to record with a with a, a major label at the same time, they're selling equipment in order to to buy food. This really framed the rest of Kurt's life. This article and the and the perceptions, and also really has continued to frame Courtney's life. Oh yeah, for sure. So, I mean, if, so I think it, if that yeah. article hadn't existed, I mean, she's certainly. Yeah. I mean, again, well, she's brought some of it on, but an, an angel. Yeah, but uh, I think that the essence of. You know, our perception of her is is clouded by by a the fact that I think that she's a woman. You know, clearly there are male rock stars who behave as she does, who get a little less grief for it. The other thing is this this article that really set up a, a notion of of who she was. I don't think that you know media the media loves narratives, and you know it's the same thing with Britney Spears. I mean, no matter what you think of Britney, I mean the narrative on her now I think is you know very going to be very hard for her to escape. And uh, you know, I think it's worth. Uh, remembering from time to time that behind whatever you see of of someone like Britney or Courtney or or whoever, that there is an, a human being there who is having to deal with all of that from the inside. And that's something just about the film we've been talking about, Courtney and Kurt and and the the article. But to even talk about that doesn't do the film justice. That's right. I, I when I'm I I went into this film expecting to see something more like that, something more about Courtney and Kurt and the the life of a of a rock star and it was a revelation to me to watch the film it was a beautifully done i got to look into someone's life i didn't even i, I love that you didn't even show uh kurt cobain until the very end of the film and then fairly well hidden because it made me feel that i was watching a a, a universal tale exactly. rather than the story of of uh, one kid who who came into fame a little bit too quick and uh, thank you for that oh you're welcome no i mean that's something i felt was really important because of the fact that Kurt's life and his story it's so clouded by all of these controversies and and they're certainly worth you know talking about on one level but I think that the essence ultimately of why people were interested in Kurt at the at the beginning or why I was interested in Kurt is you know I mean here was this very unlikely guy from a logging town on the coast of Washington he has a, a very typical upbringing. His parents get divorced when he's nine years old, and he's an outcast a little bit in his hometown, you know, or certainly a loner, somebody who's trying to, like, you know, make friends, but is finds that he's more artistic than uh, athletic, which seems to be the thing that's prized in the town. He moves to a college town and starts 
a band and is influenced by all the music he discovers in that college town. Mm-hmm. It's a very universal tale, particularly yeah. of what it was for you know people my age. Kurt was a year older than me at, at the time that we grew up. I think that he represents that specific time, and, and it was important to kind of strip away everything that you thought of him or held of him or any image that you had of him in order to try to uh, reconnect with something that was not the tabloid image or not the notion of the grunge flannel-wearing guy uh, that you might have in your head. It was exciting to be able to remove all that from the audience and force them in a way to just listen to this voice and to connect with this voice to the point, I hope, where I think people start to forget that the voice is Kurt Cobain and they're just listening to this, this narrator tell them about, the, about his life. That's, you accomplished that, uh, absolutely, at least with me. We're speaking with uh, director A.J. Schnock. The film is Kurt Cobain about a son. I want to talk a little bit about your director of photography, Wyatt Troll. How did you come in contact with him? Because there's some beautiful stuff in this movie. Yeah, Wyatt and I have known each other for, I guess, about 14 years. I, I actually was just thinking about all the things I wanted to do in the film, and, and I knew I wanted to do some, some portraiture of people on the streets in each of the cities. And, and Wyatt's an amazing portraiture photographer, both in motion picture film and as well as as a still photographer. Mm-hmm. Um, I just love his work in that regard. He and I went to have lunch uh, one day, I was telling him a bit about the film, and, and he was telling me about a, a film he'd been working on where he'd been going to these places in Southeast Asia, I think in Thailand, where uh, people who had AIDS would be living. And when they knew that they were terminal, they would write a death poem, a way of summing up their lives uh, that they could leave behind. And he said, so what you want to do is, is make Kurt's death poem. Um, and so when he said that, I knew he was the right person. Oh, that is, that's a really good way to frame this film. Too. Yeah. And as Nathan's been talking about, you go to these different pla- all these different places where he lived, where he went to school, where he worked. You really feel like you, you're seeing his life unfold in front of you. Well, there's a fine shot there of the YMCA pool yeah. that Cobain swam in. That's yeah. that's <laughs> reminiscent of Nevermind. There's the uh, shots of where he scored heroin. When I'm watching the film, it, 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 you don't even realize what you're getting, and, and yet you feel what you're getting. Yeah. That's what I yeah. found remarkable about it. I, is there some specific instructions you gave to Wyatt Troll as far as when he went out and shot? Did you always accompany him? Yeah, no, I, yeah, I was always with him. And yeah. in some cases, you know, we, he and I or I went by myself and shot locations with still photographs, and, and we actually had a, a very thick book. Uh, that we had put together of images and storyboards that we so the whole film was really planned out as far as what we were shooting when but we tried to allow that we would have some room once we arrived somewhere that we, when we didn't want to be so locked in to what we were doing so for instance if we were going to the mill where Kurt's father worked we, we might have 10 or 11 shots that I knew that I wanted to get but then once we got there Wyatt and I and, and our producer Shirley Moyers we'd look around and we would say, like, oh, look, there's this girly calendar on the wall, and there's this really jagged, huge, uh, round saw hanging next to it. That's a really nice shot. Mm-hmm. Um, so there would be things like that that we would just kind of discover as we went along. But the goal, you know, I think, you know, you mentioned the, the place where uh, the, the post office in Seattle where... 
Kurt would go to score heroin. In fact, in a lot of people in that uh, music community would go. And we don't identify it as such, although it's during a, a time period when Kurt's talking about his, his drug use. Be- because of exactly what you said, I mean, we wanted people to, at the end of the film, have a sense that what they, that there was an authenticity to what they saw and that yeah. there was a connection to Kurt in every image in the film. But we didn't want to constantly be, you know, announcing that yeah, you, via yeah. Chiron or <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, subtitle like and arrows, actual place. Yeah, yeah, arrows where you know this is where Kurt scored yeah. his heroin. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. yeah. That's you have a narrative film that's a documentary in many ways. It's a very impressionistic a version of a narrative film, but not to mention the soundtrack, and not which I know you had a great time putting together. Can you talk a little bit about that? That you're you didn't choose any Nirvana songs, even though at the end you were even looking for some. Yeah, no, we uh, went through, and from the beginning, one of the first questions Michael asked me was, um, how are you going to do the music, or what music are you going to use? And I said that I really wanted to use the music of the the, the artists and the bands that influenced Kurt. And, you know, I mean, he's sort of the perfect person to do that with, because he, he was so vocal about the bands that influenced him, and as well as artists that he was interested in and just wanted to shine a light on. Also because I think that Kurt... One of his main talents was uh, his ability to uh, to sort of fuse all of these different styles of music together in in the work that he was creating himself. So um, it was a great excuse to have a soundtrack that you know includes Queen and David Bowie and Iggy Pop and REM and also includes the Vaselines and yeah. Mud Honey and Butthole Surfers. You know, I mean, it's a yeah. it's a great great opportunity to put on bad brains, you know, I mean, for a lot of bands that I really like, and to show really how wide and diverse his, his influences are. And yeah, we thought that maybe the film would end, or I thought maybe the film would end with a Nirvana song um, when you see his, his photographs at the end of the film. But when I got to that point, it, it, had, it felt completely wrong. Yeah. It, it felt like, A, that the Nirvana song had to summarize everything that had led up to it, and which is a lot to ask of a, a single song. Um, and also, it's a, this very sad, mournful, kind of lonely moment at the end of the film. Mm-hmm. And uh, all of the, every Nirvana song I tried, it was almost felt too triumphant to me. Yeah. So I put in a piece of score that our composers, uh, Steve Fisk and Ben Gibbard, created, and uh, I thought it was just right. Yeah. There's a nice moment later in the film in which uh, Kurt and Michael are, are talking. It sounds like they could be at the kitchen table at his house. Right. And uh, Courtney calls down to to Kurt about something about Francis, about getting milk, or don't forget to bring a, the bottle. And it's just a, one of those what's, what's r- important. regular moments yeah. in life that uh, very illustrative of uh, the kind of person that, I mean, the relationship that they had was just like anyone else. When did uh, Steve Fisk and Benjamin Gibber think about the project? Did they Were they involved from the beginning, or did they just uh, do the one piece of uh, music for it? You know, they wrote the entire score, which yeah. was uh, really amazing. I mean, yeah. I was really influenced also in just in terms of making the film by um, the the work that Godfrey Reggio and uh, Philip Glass did in Koyaanisqatsi. Yeah. The way that they worked on that film, I thought was really interesting, and I wanted to kind of recreate it. And it was that they went out and had the com- uh, the composer, Philip Glass, actually write a piece of score uh, as they were shooting or after they they shot, but they edited to his score. And so I wanted to be able to edit uh, the images we had to to his score as well. So they scored 
the film to these audio tapes that I had edited together and the sort of the music from the, the bands that I mentioned. And so I went to work when I edited. I t- we had shot our our film, and I went went in and started laying it into uh, this completely edited and composed piece of audio that included. Kurt speaking, it included the band's uh, songs, and it included uh, Steve and Ben's score. And that was really exciting. That was a really great way for me uh, to work on the project. Well, it turned out great. Thank you so much. Very fine. The film is Kurt Cobain, About a Son, A.J. Schnock, the director. Thanks for being with us on Film School. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at KUCI.org slash filmschool.